Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. In his bid to get back to the White House, former President Donald Trump is betting big on Michigan. In the coming hours, Trump plans to hold a rally with auto workers, though it's unknown if the audience will include auto workers who are on strike against major automakers. Tonight's event is taking place at a non-union facility. NPR's Frank Ordonia says while Trump's courting votes, the clear frontrunner for the GOP presidential nomination will not be joining his Republican rivals at tonight's debate. Seven Republicans will take the debate stage for the second GOP presidential primary in California. It's the second debate former President Donald Trump is missing as he looks past the Republican primaries and focuses more of his attention on the general election. That leads to his trip to the crucial state of Michigan, where he's expected to try and court auto workers, many of whom are on strike. Yesterday, President Biden traveled to Michigan, where he joined a picket line. He told members of the United Auto Workers Union that they deserve more than what the automakers were paying them. Trump will hold a rally at a non-union plant outside Detroit, and he's expected to make the case that he's better suited to protect the industry and therefore auto workers' jobs. Franco. Ordonez, NPR News. Senator Robert Menendez has pleaded not guilty in a Manhattan federal courtroom to bribery charges related to the federal corruption case against a Democrat. NPR's Jacqueline Diaz has details. Senator Menendez and his wife Nadine face three charges related to allegations that the senator took large sums of money and luxury gifts. Prosecutors say that in return, Menendez did favors for New Jersey businessmen and provided sensitive information to the Egyptian government. The senator was released on a $100,000 bail. He will still be allowed to participate in foreign travel in his official capacity as senator. Menendez has so far refused to step down as senator. This is despite the many calls from Senate Democrats urging him to resign. Jacqueline Diaz, NPR News. A Montana law that bans gender-affirming Medicare for or care for minors is temporarily blocked. District Court Judge Jason Marks says the law is likely unconstitutional. The state argues the law is intended to protect children from possibly undergoing permanent harm. A U.S. astronaut makes history with a 371-day, 157-million-mile journey to the International Space Station and back. Frank Rubio the U.S. record holder for the longest single space flight in history, back on Earth. NASA broadcasting Rubio and two Russian cosmonauts landing in Kazakhstan in a Soyuz capsule this morning. From Washington, this is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The state of Massachusetts is awarding more than $4 million to help with security needs of faith-based organizations that may be targeted for hate crimes. Governor Maura Healey says her administration is committed to ensuring the organizations have the resources to create safe environments. The money is being made available from the state using federal funds. On Monday, St. Stephen's Armenian Church in Watertown was hit with hate-based graffiti. Massachusetts U.S. Senator Ed Markey is urging the Biden administration to track settlement money related to the opioid crisis. Markey says 85 percent of the $50 million from the settlement is not subject to oversight. He is demanding the funds be used in communities directly harmed by the opioid epidemic. And Taunton police released the name of the suspect accused in the assault of police officers last night. Police say 35-year-old Douglas Haggerty is facing a number of charges, including armed assault with intent to murder. 
Police say Haggerty crashed into a multifamily home and pulled a knife, slashing five officers, one of them seriously. This is WBUR. It's 4.05. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. In sports, Red Sox are back at Fenway Park tonight for the final home game of the season. They face the Tampa Bay Rays to wrap up a short two-game set. Should be a lovely night for a ball game tonight. Overnight, partly cloudy skies, temperatures about 50 degrees. Then for tomorrow, lots of sunshine in the mid-60s. Lots of clouds back on Friday. This is WBUR, 65 degrees in Boston at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. And Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at OceanStateJobLot.com. We have so much news coming up for you in the next couple of hours on WBUR, including just in the next few minutes. First, though, we hope you will listen to our call because it is day one of our fun drive. We want to hear your call and listen to your reason for pledging to WBUR. Here's the number 1-800-909-9287 or go online at WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins in the studio with Amory Sievertson, and our goal this time around is to get 25 hundred listeners to become monthly contributors to WBUR. Hi, Lisa. And yes, this makes so much sense to me, I have to say, this idea of monthly giving, because you listening right now, you listening even during a fundraiser, you are a dedicated listener to WBUR. You rely on us day in and day out. You count on the information that we bring to you Programs like All Things Considered, maybe Morning Edition the next morning. Maybe you, podcasts. Maybe podcasts. Yes. You are with us. We are with you. She's and so the when queen you give. Our podcast. <laughs> the queen. Wow. <laughs> what an honor. Um, I'm not. But I appreciate that. And I appreciate you listening during this fundraiser and knowing that. You know, it takes you to sustain WBUR the same way that we are sustaining you right now through your afternoon, through your week, through your month, through this life we're all living together. And so when you give a little bit of money every month, you know that you have our back. We know that we have your back with all of the news and information. So right now, we have a special offer on the table. You can get a pair of tickets to a show of your choice at the Huntington Theater Company's 2023-2024 season. That's as our thanks for a contribution of $20 a month to WBUR because you know you listen day in and day out. So when you give that little bit of money every month, you know that you're supporting us day in and day out the same way that we're supporting you. So $20 a month, tickets to any show in their upcoming season, a pair of tickets is our thanks, and you know exactly how we are using that money to create the news and programs that you count on. 1-800-909-9287 is the number, or do it online, WBUR.org. Emory makes a great point there. You know where your money is going because you hear it right back in what you hear on the air and what you get at WBUR.org. You get it through our podcast, through our newsletters, through our programming at City Space, in fact. So Make the pledge right now in whatever amount you can afford. You may listen day in, day out. You may listen just for a few minutes at a time. 
make your contribution to WBUR, preferably a monthly contribution, in direct proportion to however long you listen. So if you listen to us for just a few minutes a day and get something out of it, and we assume you do because you wouldn't be wasting your time then, uh, pledge $5 a month if you can, uh, or $20 a month if you can do that. If you can swing, as some people can, $100 a month, we would sure appreciate it. The monthly gifts are the ones that really keep us going from fundraiser to fundraiser, it gives us a padding so we know how much money we have to spend on covering the news on events like the election that's coming up next year and on events that we have no idea about right now. So keep this station strong because you reap the results every time you listen. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Yeah, it helps us know that we have the resources that we need to be here for you. And it also, you know what, it takes a little load off of your mind. You know that you have done your part for WBUR. And Lisa, I don't know about you, but this uh, this is how I operate. I like just the set it and forget it about the things that I really care about, the things that I really depend on, you know, knowing that I have given my little bit of money every month to those things. It's, it's, it's a peace of mind thing for all of us involved, all of us who count on WBUR, everyone in the community who counts on it. Your sustaining support, that, that money every month helps us know that you have our back. And again, right now we don't have, we have a limited number of these pairs of tickets to the Huntington Theater. So for a contribution of $20 a month, one of those can be yours. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Thank you so much. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Fall Experience, featuring four dynamic ballets on stage October 5th to the 15th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos and their efforts to protect and preserve the natural world for future generations. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. A new study shows how certain genes can lead to brain disorders like autism, epilepsy, and schizophrenia. NPR's John Hamilton reports that the research also hints at ways to prevent or treat those disorders. Scientists have identified hundreds of genes that are associated with autism and other disorders of brain development. Dr. Sergio Pashka of Stanford University says finding all these genes was a good first step. The challenge now is to figure out what they're actually doing, how disruptions in these genes are actually causing disease. And that has been really difficult. Because you can't do genetic experiments on humans. You can experiment on animal brains, but they don't really develop anything that looks like autism or schizophrenia. So Pashka and a team of scientists tried an approach using clumps of human brain cells called brain organoids. We can actually make different parts of the nervous system in a dish from stem cells. The team used these organoids to study how genes affect special brain cells called interneurons, which are thought to play a role in several psychiatric disorders. Pashka says that during pregnancy and the first years of life, these brain cells must complete a remarkable journey. Interneurons are born in deep regions of the brain, and then they have to migrate all the way to the cortex. So now you can imagine that during that migration, a lot of things could go awry. Pashka's team simulated the migration of interneurons by creating two types of organoids. One resembles an area deep in the brain called the subpallium, where most interneurons are generated. Pashka says the other organoid resembles the cerebral cortex, where interneurons are supposed to end up. And then we've put them together, allowing these interneurons to move towards the cerebral cortex. 
With typical organoids, the process worked just the way it's supposed to. So next, Pashka's team used a gene editing technique called CRISPR to alter the organoids. Pashka says CRISPR allowed them to study the effect of more than 400 genes. And out of those genes... About 10% are actually interfering either with the generation of this interneurons of the cerebral cortex or with their migration. Pashka says in the cortex, interneurons serve as a sort of break, slowing down brain cell activity. Meanwhile, other cells act as the accelerator. Without adequate braking, brain cells can fire out of control, disrupting networks and even causing epileptic seizures. Dr. Guo Li Ming of the University of Pennsylvania says the study shows how variations on lots of different genes could keep interneurons from doing their job. That would be a disaster. Uh, the, the circuitry would be wrong and the signaling would be wrong. Ultimately, the brain function would be wrong. Ming, who was not connected with the study, says her lab would like to use the approach in their own research. We've been interested in schizophrenia, which is another psychiatric disorder with neurodevelopmental origin. Kristen Brennan, the professor of psychiatry at Yale, says scientists' understanding of neurodevelopmental disorders is decades behind their understanding of diseases like cancer. 30 years ago, we might have thought all intestinal cancers should be treated the same way and all lung cancers should be treated the same way, now we know a lot better. Doctors study the genes of cancer cells rather than their location to determine which treatment is most likely to work. Brennan says the new study should help bring a similar approach to the care of patients with autism, epilepsy, and schizophrenia. This improved genetic understanding will let us do better at diagnosing patients, I hope, but also treating them because we'll know which pathways we can target to intervene. The new study appears in the journal Nature. John Hamilton, NPR News. A new lawsuit could fundamentally reshape one of the biggest companies in the world. The Federal Trade Commission and 17 states accuse Amazon of abusing its monopoly power. The FTC says Amazon broke the law to steer business to its own platform, hurting consumers and sellers. We'll note that Amazon is among NPR's financial supporters and pays to distribute some of our content, but we cover it like any other company. Our next guest is the chair of the FTC, Lena Khan. Thank you for joining us live on All Things Considered. Good to be here. Amazon has built its brand on a reputation for offering lower prices than its competitors. And in this lawsuit, you argued that they have only maintained low prices by manipulating the market in ways that ultimately result in shoppers paying higher prices than they would if they were fair competition. So can you begin by giving us one specific example of how you allege Amazon has done that and hurt shoppers? So there are a variety of ways that Amazon is now hurting its customers, both the sellers that rely on Amazon to reach shoppers as well as shoppers themselves. One is that Amazon has been hiking the fees that sellers have to pay. So sellers now have to pay a 50% cut to Amazon. It's a 50% Amazon tax. Sellers have to pass that along to consumers and sellers themselves are small businesses. We've also seen how Amazon has rolled out a pay to play ad scheme, which means that ads are what you see when you search on Amazon and you often get less relevant results and are steered to higher products. And in a healthy, well-functioning, competitive market, if a company chooses to hike prices and worsen service for its customers, that creates an opening for rivals to come in. But our lawsuit alleges that Amazon has actually engaged in a set of illegal tactics to prevent that from happening and to unlawfully maintain its monopoly. Like, just to get specific, I just bought a pet product from a website that was not Amazon. What do you allege Amazon does to make sure the website I bought the pet product from doesn't have a lower price? 
So Amazon has a policy, an anti-discounting policy, that basically punishes sellers who sell on other retail platforms at a lower price. Uh, they have a whole set of coercive and, and punitive outcomes for sellers who do that. You can basically disappear from Amazon's storefront if you put a lower price somebody somewhere else. And for sellers, you know, given the significant shopper traffic on Amazon, if Amazon makes you disappear from that storefront, that can be quite fatal for your business. So right. this is really small businesses survival that's on the line. And so when Amazon says, hey, I'm going to punish you if you have lower prices elsewhere. Businesses take that very seriously. And oftentimes, as a result, businesses uh, have to set their artificially high Amazon price as a price floor across the Internet. Mm -hmm. So not only are you paying more on Amazon, but our lawsuit alleges that people are actually paying more across the Internet because of Amazon's illegal tactics. We invited Amazon to provide somebody to speak with us. They declined, but the company's general counsel posted a response to the lawsuit on the website. And that response says, in part, if the FTC gets its way, the result would be fewer products to choose from, higher prices, slower deliveries for consumers, and reduced options for small businesses, the opposite of what antitrust law is designed to do. That's a quote. How do you respond to that? Look, I recommend everybody to read the lawsuit. Uh, the introduction itself is quite short and readable. It's 10 pages. So I, I recommend people read uh, our lawsuit and, and the tactics that we note. Uh, these anti-discounting schemes, this coercive tie that requires sellers uh, to use Amazon's fulfillment service if they want to be able to access a decent amount of shoppers. Um, these are all tactics that we allege are designed and have the effect of depriving any other actual or potential rival to Amazon from being able to get the scale needed to meaningfully compete. But in terms uh, so of the statement this... saying, if you win the lawsuit, there are going to be fewer products and higher prices, slower deliveries, etc. I mean, do you think that's factually true or false? Totally false. Uh, our lawsuit is alleging that as a result of Amazon's illegal practices, people are paying higher prices. Consumers are paying more. Sellers are paying more. I mean, sellers are having to give over one of every two dollars to Amazon. These are many of them small businesses with low margins. And so we absolutely believe that if we're successful, uh, there will be honest and fair competition in the marketplace and the public will benefit. The public will benefit through lower prices, higher quality, greater selection, more innovation. And both shoppers and sellers will have more opportunity, right? I mean, if you go and, and read from some of the seller comments, uh, you really see how many of them live in fear of Amazon's mm. conduct. And really, that's what our anti-monopoly laws were designed to prevent. Many people were surprised to see that this suit does not specifically ask for a breakup of the company. You argued in a famous 2017 academic paper that the only way to restrain companies like Amazon is to break them up. Now, I know that your first step is that you need to prove in court that they broke the law. But if I were to ask you for the 10,000-foot view, do you think there is any way to get Amazon to fix all of the problems that you lay out here without breaking up the company? It's a good question. And as you noted, this complaint is focused on establishing liability. Uh, we do, in our prayer for relief, note that all options should be on the table, including structural relief. Um, so that's certainly part of what's potentially contemplated here. Uh, ultimately, any relief needs to stop the illegal tactics prevent a recurrence, and fully restore competition. 
And one thing we note in the complaint is that in digital markets, the harms really aggregate. And you can have cumulative harms in ways that are greater than the sum of the individual parts. And so when you have an unlawful set of tactics over years and years and years, and as a result of those tactics, the gap and gulf between Amazon and everybody else is extremely vast, to actually fully restore competition might require significant relief. And mm. so that's what the complaint is teed up uh, for us to be able to argue to the judge. There are several polls and surveys showing that Amazon is one of the most popular and trusted brands, even one of the most well-regarded institutions in the U.S. Uh, just in our last minute, are there risks to bringing a massive lawsuit against a company that many people seem to love? Look, we follow the, the facts and the law where they take us. Uh, we believe that if you have open, fair, competitive markets, those are really what are best positioned to make sure the public is winning from competition. Uh, this is really about ensuring that the next set of Amazons are able to come into the market and fairly compete rather than be unfairly and unlawfully locked out of the market. So this is really about more competition, more types of Amazons, the next generation of Amazons um, being able to get a foothold in the market and compete and make life better for consumers, for sellers, uh, for shoppers. And that's really what this lawsuit is designed to do. Lena Khan, chair of the Federal Trade Commission, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks so much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us today. The Dow dropped two-tenths of a percent on Wall Street today. S&P was pretty much flat. The Nasdaq rose two-tenths of a percent. Turned out to be a pretty nice day today. Clouds and sunshine back and forth, a little bit windy. Tonight should be partly cloudy with a waxing moon down to about 50 degrees overnight tonight. Mainly sunny and dry tomorrow, up around 67 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR, 65 degrees now in Boston at 423. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Book Festival, happening October 14th in Copley Square. Join 200 notable authors speaking about everything from how to be happy to how to save democracy. Thrillers, memoirs, satire, myth-making, and a taste of history, too. Don't miss it. Details at bostonbookfest.org. And Brookline Bank where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach, committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. I'm Deepa Fernandez. The crisis in journalism has been chronicled many times over. The pandemic and current economic conditions hasten the decline. Most of the focus has been on newspapers, but even WBUR's own future is far from assured. That's why we need more members and member dollars. Giving $10 or $20 every month is the single best thing you can do to keep our journalism going. Give monthly at WBUR.org. And thank you. Thank you so much if you have already given to WBUR. If you haven't, think about why you choose WBUR to listen to of all the alternatives that are on the dial right now. And we should say, going along with what Deepa just mentioned, there are fewer and fewer. So you really want to make sure that you focus your attention, focus your uh, uh, funding, in fact, on whatever is the most reliable, accountable source of news. 
We hope that's WBUR, and because you're listening to us, we hope you will contribute right now. This is day one of our fall fund drive, and they're all important fundraisers. This is really important for us because we are asking for, in particular, monthly contributions so we can be more assured of our financial future. I'm Lisa Mullins, along with Amory Sievertson. Hey there, Lisa. And yeah, you know, Deepa kind of hit hit it right on the nose in talking about shoring up WBUR's future. These fundraisers are really all about not taking WBUR for granted, not taking, you know, any public media source for granted because you are the public in public media. You make it possible for us to be an independent news source, not beholden to any outside influences. We are bringing you the truth. We are fact checking. We are thoughtful. We are analytical in how we bring this to you. We also, of course, bring some joy and some cheer to it. Um, But you know why you turn to WBUR and we're, we're asking you to not take that for granted and to be there for us right now. Give a little bit of money every month because that crosses off supporting WBUR from your list. You know you have that set and we know that we have you. So can you do $10 a month right now for WBUR? Can you do $15 or $20 a month for WBUR? I want to put a little offer on the table, a little something in your head right now. Another great local institution that you can support with your support for us because we have pairs of tickets to the Huntington Theater Company. You can get a pair of tickets to any show in their 2023-2024 season when you give $20 a month right now to WBUR. $20 a month, you get to go see a show, a little treat and a little thanks uh, from them and from us for doing your part for WBUR. And we have a limited number of those. So call right now, 1-800-909-9287. Go to WBUR.org and show that support. It is a great lineup that they have there. Uh, Here is Temple Gill with the Huntington talking about one of the plays that you could see. This new play is called Tony Stone, and it's based on the real-life story of this amazing woman who was the first woman to play on a professional men's baseball team in the 1950s. She was a kind of a baseball geek. She knew everybody's stats. She loved the game. She also had an amazing arm and was a terrific player. But she got rejected from the Women's League at that time because she was black. And so she joined the Detroit Clowns in the Negro Leagues, and she was the only woman that played in that league. So the story is inspiring. It talks about her trials and tribulations and successes on this team, and it is a celebration of baseball at the perfect time of year in May and June. Lisa, I'm hooked. Exactly. I'm, I'm going. That, that sounds like a good news story. That did it. That did it for me. So again, a pair of tickets to a show of your choice, maybe to Tony Stone, as we just heard Temple Gill from the Huntington um, talking about. That is our thanks uh, for a gift of $20 a month to WBUR. Can you do that right now for everything that you listen to, everything that you get from WBUR? from WBUR. Everything that most days you're not thinking about the fact that you're getting all of this news and information at no cost to you. That's because we believe you should have access to this. We believe everyone should have access to this and it takes money to bring it to you. So if you are someone who's in a position to be able to support it, please do in any amount per month, 1-800-909-9287 or give online, WBUR.org. It could be $5 a month, $10 a month if you can 
swing at $100 a month, uh, whatever is affordable for you, whatever feels right to you, given what you get from WBUR. This is a news source available to anyone, anywhere, anytime, really at no cost. You don't have to pay anything, but we make our uh, money, not only money, we make our revenue, we are able to stay um, operating because of your contributions. We get so little from the federal government. We're not complaining about that either because we would rather be beholden to you than any other entity. So please take that seriously and give whatever you can on a monthly basis if you can to keep our journalism strong for the future. Here's the number 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Emory, this time around, and this is the first day of our fundraiser for those who are just tuning in, we have a goal of, I think it's 2,500 monthly um, contributions. I know that we can do that. I know that we can do that. I know that maybe you are listening out there and thinking, huh, I've never done this before. I've never given to WBUR. Now is the time. Now is your moment. Now is your chance to be part of this because, you know, we don't get an engaged, civically minded, uh, you know, thoughtful thinking community without resources like WBUR. We need it here to keep us all informed, to keep us all, you know, truly sane in the flurry of, of information that's swirling around. We help you sort through it and make sense of it. And so when you give to WBUR, when you make it possible for us to do everything that we do for WBUR, you're giving that to yourself, you're giving that to your community, you're making us all better informed, smarter, stronger, thoughtful, engaged people. That is money well spent. Please do it right now in any amount per month. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The White House says the American soldier who ran across the demilitarized zone between South and North Korea two months ago is now heading home. Private Travis King's release was secured with the help of U.S. ally Sweden and rival China. The announcement surprised some observers who expected North Korea to drag out King's detention in hopes of squeezing some concessions from Washington. NPR's Anthony Kuhn offers some possible explanations. They felt it wasn't worth it. Suppose he got sick and died. Suppose something happened to him. It could be, uh, you know, not worth the cost. But, you know, they had said that uh, he was open to seeking refuge in North Korea or a third country because of the issue of racism. So then the question is, then why would they send him back to face that? NPR's Anthony Kuhn. U.S. officials say before they decide on next steps for King's case, he will be given medical and psychological attention and will be reunited with his family. The rollout of the new COVID-19 vaccines has been spotty, as NPR's Yuki Noguchi tells us. Consumers are seeing problems from being able to get the shot to 
facing big copay charges. When the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommended the new COVID boosters two weeks ago, consumers were supposed to be able to get doses immediately. But rollout has been slow, in part because supply hasn't reached all stores, and in part because of snags in insurance coverage. By law, insurers are supposed to cover the costs, but some customers are getting hit with copays and charges. Here's Jennifer Cates at the Kaiser Family Foundation. One of the issues is that health plans didn't quite get the memo on what the requirements are for coverage or have been just sort of slow to kind of get their systems ready. Pharmacies and drug makers say the short supply is starting to resolve. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Governor Moore Healy has announced her choice for the ninth and final member of the MBTA's Board of Directors. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez has more. Governor Healy has tapped Framingham Mayor Charlie Sasitsky to join the T's board. Sasitsky was sworn in as Framingham's mayor in January of 2022. He has over 40 years of public administration experience, including positions in Framingham, Medford, and Natick. His seat on the T's board was one of two created as part of the state's 2024 budget. It was designed to be filled by a municipal official representing a city or town served by the T. The other seat was reserved for a representative for the city of Boston. Earlier this week, Mayor Michelle Wu named Mary Skelton Roberts, who works in climate and transportation policy, to that spot. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. The MBTA is still plagued with problems, continued slow zones, and workers being placed in danger. That's according to the head of the group Transit Matters. Jared Johnson says this is a major failure of the administration. He tells WBR's Radio Boston that commuters need to know when they'll have a reliable service. We, we just need to figure out from this general manager what are the tools that he needs, whether those are some legislative tools and, and exemptions or different things that he needs in, in that realm, uh, and then clearly, of course, money. The Boston Globe reports there are 11 new slow zones on the recently reopened Green Line extension on the Medford branch and three on the Union Square branch. The reason is the rails are too close together. The man who was rescued yesterday from Boston Harbor after falling overboard from a tanker has died. The man fell from the tanker MTM Dublin and was rescued by a crew of the fishing boat America. The Coast Guard says the crewman fell when a ladder was lowered from the tanker. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. And AAFCPAs, accounting, audit, tax, advisory, and wealth management for nonprofits, commercial companies, and individuals. AAFCPA.com. Partly cloudy this afternoon. Tonight, partly cloudy again and dry, about 50 degrees for a low tonight. Then tomorrow, lots of sunshine, temperatures in the mid-60s, clouds back again for Friday. 65 degrees in Boston at 435. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Science Festival, Boston Fashion Week, Illuminous, and Stiggity Stacks, a one-night-only future fashion experience this Saturday in Kendall Square and Spalding Rehabilitation. For expert care, turn to Spalding with three inpatient hospitals, a skilled nursing facility, and outpatient centers across Eastern Mass. Spalding is a world leader in advanced rehab treatment and research. U.S. News ranks Spalding number two for rehab care in the country. SpaldingRehab.org.
The past decade has been very good for American car makers. Profits for the big three, that would be Ford, GM, and Stellantis, rose 92 percent from 2013 to 2022. They are expected to make another $32 billion this year alone. Now, where those profits go, back into workers' pockets or developing electric vehicles, for example, this is at the heart of the current strike by United Auto Workers against the big three. Let's parse the numbers now with someone who has covered the auto industry for decades. Micheline Maynard is a journalist and author of the book, The End of Detroit, How the Big Three Lost Their Grip on the American Car Market. Welcome. Mary Louise, I'm happy to be here. So let's start just with the big picture with profits. Why are profits up so much? There are a couple of factors here. One is that the car companies are selling an enormous number of pickup trucks and SUVs. Those vehicles now make up 80% of car sales. Back about 20 years ago, it was 50-50. So 50% cars, 50% trucks. Now it's 80-20. The average price of a vehicle is now about $48,000, which just, you know, that's probably what our parents paid for houses and maybe even less than that. So car prices are up, profits are up. And On the surface, it does very much look like car companies can afford to give the union the raises that they want. Just before I move on from these insane-sounding profits, um, how surprising is it, given it was not so many years ago that there were all these predictions for the death of the American car industry, the the death of Detroit? Well, we did see two of the car makers go into bankruptcy in 2009 and Ford Motor Company had to basically mortgage everything that it owned. But one of the things that happened when we did the bailouts was that they took away a lot of the debt that those companies had. So the car companies are leaner. And when you're leaner, you can make more money. Hmm. So the big disruptor lurking in the background of all this is, of course, the push for electric vehicles. And I want to look at this from both sides. First, from the automaker's side, we hear a lot about costs. How much is this going to cost the big three? Does it also present opportunity for for higher profits? The whole electric vehicle push is a global push. And I have seen numbers that This will be a trillion dollars, trillion with a T type of investment for all the car makers around the world. In the United States, we're seeing numbers in the billions. One of the rules of thumb in the auto industry is that you introduce a new vehicle and it costs at least a billion dollars to develop a new vehicle, if not more. And you're not going to recover that for the first few years that the vehicle is on sale. So with electric vehicles, there's a huge hurdle because a lot of people are still not ready to buy a vehicle that plugs into an outlet. They're not sure that they'll be able to charge it up. They're not sure they're going to be able to drive up north to their cabin, which is a real concern here in Michigan. So a lot of people go up to the (laughs) Upper Peninsula. You're speaking to how many things are in play and the decision to to buy a car, which, of course, feeds into uh, the bottom line for the for the auto industry. I, I want to ask about the uh, the other side of the table, the union's take on the transition to EVs. What are they demanding 
as their bosses, as as the automakers transition to electric vehicles, which, by the way, will require fewer people to manufacture. Exactly, because you don't put engines in electric vehicles. You put batteries in electric vehicles, and you don't put the batteries together yourself on the assembly line. They come in on a truck, and they're dropped into the vehicle. So there will I'm sure there will be job losses. And I think what the UAW is trying to do is make sure that the people who are working now are getting paid more and that they get better benefits. And this other issue that people might hear is about COLA, which is not something you drink. It's a cost of living allowance. When the bankruptcies took place, COLA went away. It had been part of union contracts for years. So Sean Fain is saying, I want COLA back. I want Sean the Fain, workers. the UAW president, yeah. Exactly. Sean Fain is saying, I want COLA back. I want my workers protected from inflation because inflation has been a real issue over the last few years. And if you're only making $14 an hour and you get hit with inflation, I've heard of UAW members who are taking second jobs and even third jobs to be able to support their families. One more thing, and this is big picture, but you nodded to the fact that the auto industry is globalized. Manufacturers can look overseas for for cheap labor. Many companies here in the U.S. are producing cars with non-union workers. How much leverage do these workers ultimately have? There are so many fewer workers now. If you look at General Motors years ago, they had 400,000 workers They basically have less than a quarter of that now. So the strikes are hurting the car companies, but you don't have the breadth of workers that you once did. So I think they have leverage. But in the long term, there's other competition and there's other places to go. And I think what Sean Fain is trying to do is is get as much for his workers now, knowing that, you know, there might be some dark days ahead. Micheline Maynard, she covers the car industry and is based in Michigan. Thank you. My pleasure. This is NPR News. WBUR supporters include the Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, an immersive Arctic world exploration with technology as your guide, tickets at mos.org, and the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. Join a vibrant academic community. Enjoy in-person peer-led courses on their Cambridge campus, speaker events, special interest groups, and more. Apply by October 25th to start in February. To learn more, visit their website, the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. I'm Tiziana Deering. At WBUR, our job goes beyond reporting the news. We also help make sense of an increasingly complex world. We foster understanding, build community, and when we can, we spark joy and laughter. But as we look forward, we know our future's not a given. Giving monthly, it is key to keeping WBUR strong. So help us get to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. We hope you'll do that now on this, the first day of a fund drive who's already made a dent in that 2,500 listeners becoming monthly contributors to WBUR. You can help us along the way by making the call right now. 
1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Call before we go to All Things Considered once again. By the way, we have a conversation with uh, actor Carrie Washington, who writes in her new memoir about her parents' decision to reveal a long-held family secret. That's coming up in just a couple of minutes on WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins here with Amory Sievertson. Hello, Lisa. Yes, day one of the fundraiser, but you can make this your day by doing your part right now. As we've heard, we're, we're trying to reach a goal of 2,500 new monthly contributing members, 2,500 people who do their part by setting and forgetting it, if you will, by saying, you know what, I know I count on WBUR day in and day out, so I'm going to give a little bit of money every month so that I know that WBUR has my support day in and day out. It's just the smart thing to do. It, it allows you to cross this off your list, take it off your mind while knowing that you have your back the same way that we have yours. Is it $5 a month that you can do? Is it $10 or $20 a month? Can you do a larger gift of $50 a month? You know what's right for you. You get to choose the amount. Just do it right now. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And we hope you will do it right now. There are so many incentives. One of the incentives that we know that you realize because it's the reason you listen to WBUR is the are the stories, the interviews that you get, the one that Mary Louise Kelly just did with Mickey Maynard about how high profits for major automakers over the past decade have become a central issue in the United Auto Workers strike. These stories, these interviews are so interesting, even if you think they're not going to be, there is some morsel that you might get that will help you understand a story in a way that you didn't before. So if you appreciate that, we know that you do. Please pledge your support for it right now. 1-800-909-9287. If you can, please become a monthly contributor. And when you do, we can kind of keep the stories going here because we have a special offer on the table right now. You can get a pair of tickets to any show in the upcoming season, Huntington Theater's upcoming season, 2023-2024. A pair of tickets is our thanks of a gift of $20 a month to WBUR. And Temple Gill from the Huntington is here to tell you about one of those shows, John Proctor is the Villain. John Proctor is the Villain is a reinterpretation of the Crucible. It takes place in a rural high school in Georgia, and a group of young students have just read the classic play, The Crucible, and are talking about it. And they find that many of the things in the play are mirroring things that have happened in their lives, and they have a lot to say about it. These uh, these Huntington teasers are just so tantalizing, Lisa. <laughs> Truly, like I'm 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 excited to go, and I I want you to get these pair of of tickets because we we will run out of them. So secure yours now. Make that contribution of twenty dollars a month to WBUR and get a little something extra for yourself. Take a friend and tell them that you supported WBUR. One eight hundred nine zero nine nine two eight seven, or go to wbur.org. Thanks so much. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. Carrie Washington is no stranger to playing characters holding on to massive secrets. It was an occupational hazard for political fixer Olivia Pope on the hit series Scandal. If you don't get subpoenaed, this never happened. And in Little Fires Everywhere, Washington stars as Mia, a surrogate who runs away to raise the baby she carried for another family as her own. Only one other person knows her secret by the time Mia's daughter is a teenager. Did I do the right thing? Keeping the truth from her? Only you know that. As Mia listens to her friend, her face buckles in pain, tears streaming down her face. In real life, Carrie Washington says that take of the scene mirrored the pain of a real-life secret. It's one of many private, personal revelations that Washington lays bare in her new memoir, Thicker Than Water. Carrie Washington, first of all, thank you so much for joining us here in studio today. Thank you for having me here. I am so excited to talk with you about your new book, but I think we should say before we get started that you reveal a lot in this book. So if there are people out there who do not want to have this book spoiled and want to experience it for themselves, this is the point of the conversation where maybe you might want to turn your radio down, take a break for the next few minutes, right? Yes, but then make sure to go and download the app and listen to the segment. Exactly. You'll want more when you read it, I hope. Where I want to start this conversation is with the big revelation that is at the center of this book. Mm-hmm. And it's when you, in your 40s, learn that your father, Earl, was likely not your biological father. This was a lifelong secret that your parents were carrying. And now you're talking about it openly. You're letting the world in on it. How does it feel for you to be putting that out there and to be sharing it? It's very strange. <laughs> you know, it's so funny because I'm I'm doing so many interviews right now and appearances in support of the book, and I'm really used to a press day, right? Like, I'm used to talking about other people's stories and other people's narratives, so to have these conversations really centered around me and my family, my parents in particular, has been strange, but also, I think, liberating. Mm-hmm. Can you take us back to that moment, that conversation, and how you found out about this big secret that your parents had been keeping? If I remember correctly, this whole journey for you started out with a text message from your mom. Yeah, so I'll back up a little bit further to say the series that I was on was ending. I was suddenly going to have more free time than I'd had in years. And I ran into an old friend, Skip Gates, who hosts a wonderful show on PBS called Finding Your Roots. And I'd always wanted to be on that show, but it never really had the time. So he asked me if I wanted to be on it. And I said, yes, this is the moment. And then they sent these DNA kits for my family. And my dad started to panic. He started not being able to sleep and he got really irritable. And my parents suddenly were changing their mind and saying that they weren't sure that they wanted to follow through with this. And I couldn't get to the bottom of it. I couldn't figure out what their resistance was. I asked Skip to get on the phone with them. And my mom, she asked in this kind of very hypothetical, like, what if maybe there's a chance that Carrie was born from a sperm donor? Would Mm. that show up in the DNA test? And he said it would. And they said, okay, well, I don't think we're going to do the show. And he said, whoa, 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 whoa. What's going on? Like, can we talk about this? And, you know, Skip really encouraged my parents to give me this information. He said, I've been doing the show a long, long time, and I've seen this happen with so many families. When people don't get a chance to talk it through while their parents are still alive, there's no opportunity for a resolution and for the family to make peace. So my parents sent me this text message and sat me down and shared this news with me. And um, it really was the beginning of a process that I think we're still on, but 
this very kind of transformative process for my family. What did the three of you learn about each other as you were going through that process? I mean, obviously, this was big news for you, but I have to imagine this was an incredibly difficult moment for your parents and their marriage that they are choosing to tell you this. Yeah. I think if they could have taken it to their grave, they would have. Um, but they, and this is this is what's so extraordinary about my parents, they made the choice that they thought would be best for me mm-hmm. by telling me, even though it was so uncomfortable for them. And I think about that a lot because I think that's so much of what parenting is. It's that willingness to think about what's best for the child, right? Like not to think that the kid is here to fulfill our dreams and be who we want them to be, but that we need to be who we need to be in order to be of service of that evolving human. I think my parents were innovators. They were groundbreakers. This was the mid-70s. This was a highly experimental medical procedure, artificial insemination. And they took this risk because they really, really wanted me. And I think I'm so lucky to have that love. Now, the relationship that we have is so much more intimate and honest and open. It was like all the veils came down, all the walls came down. There's no longer a sense that there's anything I can't ask my parents or that they can't ask me. Like my parents have read the book. They've given me their blessing. They're incredibly generous and supportive. What did they think? Um, You know, my dad is like, it's not the book I would have written. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Right. Which is fine because it's my book. Right. But the fact that he remains supportive and loving and... um, understands why it's important for me to be on this journey. I think all of that is part of the grace that we've learned to give each other in the unpacking of this truth. What did your mom say when she read the book? So I, I just, I will never forget it because my mom finished reading it and she came over to my house and she hugged me. She gave me a really big hug and she said, I'm so proud of you. It's so beautifully written. I really, really love it. And then because she's a retired professor, she handed it to me with lots of circles and were, you know, red ink markings all over. And she did some fact checking and she had some suggestions about grammar and syntax. And um, she made the book better, for sure. In this book, throughout the course of it, you also peel away so many other layers and you disclose so much. I mean, You discuss hard things like sexual abuse at the hands of another child, the struggles with body image that you had in disordered eating, panic attacks. But you also come across at times, at least when I read it, as having so much pride in your parents and your upbringing, despite all of that pain that you experienced when you were really young. So I guess the question that I have is, do you regret your childhood or are you grateful for it or is it both at once? Oh, it's such a good question. And listen, things happen when they happen. Maybe this was when we were ready. Maybe we wouldn't have processed it with as much grace and compassion and love for each other. I like to think we would have, but I I do sort of, I wouldn't change the journey, but I really do have so much compassion for that little girl and that teenage girl and that young adult who was in so much pain along the way. And I wish at times that she could have gotten help sooner. Um, but I kind of get that this was my journey, right? Like this was, this was my path. 
That was Carrie Washington talking about her new memoir, Thicker Than Water. And if you're wondering how she has coped with the secrets and trauma she reveals in the book, well, you are not alone. We also talked about the work it took to find healing. You can hear that part of our conversation elsewhere in the show and on NPR.org. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Academy, where kind and curious high school students who love to learn thrive. Virtual Open House, October 1st. BUacademy.org. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Many of our listeners tell us WBUR is essential in their lives. They say WBUR makes the world a better and more informed place. We're the news source they trust most. We want to be here for the long term, but our future isn't guaranteed. Giving monthly is the key to keeping WBUR strong. Help get us to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. We hope you will right now, if you haven't as yet. I'm Lisa Mullins here with Emery Sievertson, co-host of Endless Thread, one of our great podcasts here at WBUR. This is the first day of our fun drive. Our goal, as Rupa said, is to have 2,500 listeners become monthly contributors of WBUR. And that means that if you can give a $5 a month gift, $10 a month, $20 a month, some people can give $150 a month, we would so appreciate it. If you are already a monthly contributor, if you could maybe add a dollar or $2 to your monthly gift, that would go a long way to helping us as well. In aggregate, we rely on you for the majority of our operating budget, so please help us out on day one of our fund drive now. We would love to get off to a great start with your help. Yes, you know, it matters how you spend your money. We know that. You know that. We don't take any single contribution out there for granted. We never will. And we're asking you not to take WB for WBUR for granted, to never take WBUR for granted, to always realize that we exist because of public support. Everything you've heard on All Things Considered this afternoon, everything you've heard on WBUR all throughout the day, every single thing that you see on WBUR.org, whether it's a cognoscenti opinion piece or a newsletter that you receive from WBUR, all of that was made possible because of listener support. So if you've appreciated any of it, and I know you have because you're listening right now, we're asking you to be that listener support in any amount. That's the beauty of this. You decide whether it's $5 a month or $50 a month. Maybe you can give $20 a month right now to WBUR. And I mention that amount in particular because we have a special offer. We can uh, give you a pair of tickets to any play in the upcoming Huntington Theater 2023-2024 season as our thanks for that gift. So if you can give that $20 a month or anything in between or above, please do, because we simply can't be here without you. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call or go to WBUR.org. And make the call before we go to the top of the hour's news. Uh, we're hoping that you appreciate everything you hear on WBUR. Emery mentioned the Huntington Theater, such a mainstay in the life of Boston. We know WBUR is too, and we cannot necessarily count on a healthy economic future for ourselves. It takes a lot of money to sustain a radio station, to sustain our website, our app, 
uh, city space, all the ways that you connect with us and we connect with you. So please, if you haven't as yet, start a monthly gift or contributing, uh, contribute a dollar or two extra to your existing monthly support. And that is the best way that you can help ensure WBUR's strong financial future. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And it really just makes so much sense, Lisa, because the news doesn't stop. You know that. I know that. This way, your support doesn't have to stop. You're, you know that you can be there for us. We are there for you. We are trying to get to 2,500 new members Please be one of them. You decide the amount. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Have our back. Absolutely. And uh, we can be strong, as strong as your contributions let us be. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you so very much. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. From the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. From Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. And from the John S. and Jane L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is warning a government shutdown could impact air travel across the nation. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports Congress is running out of time and options to strike a compromise to keep federal agencies open past September 30th. The Department of Transportation is warning that a shutdown could delay air travel and exacerbate staffing issues within the industry, which is already plagued with disruptions. Secretary Buttigieg also noted that air traffic controllers, like other federal employees, would be forced to work without pay during a potential shutdown. Imagine the pressure that a controller is already under every time they take their position and then imagine the added stress of coming to that job from a household with a family that can no longer count on that paycheck. According to the U.S. Travel Association, a shutdown could cost the travel economy as much as $140 million per day. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. After pleading not guilty today to bribery charges against him, New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez is slated to address his colleagues tomorrow. The Democratic lawmaker, along with his wife and three New Jersey businessmen, charged in a scheme to direct federal aid and weapons sales to Egypt in exchange for hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash, as well as bars of gold bullion and a luxury automobile. Menendez and his wife are free on bond, though he's barred from traveling outside the U.S. for anything but official business. 
The U.S. soldier who ran into North Korea in July is on his way home after what U.S. officials describe as intense diplomacy. Officials say they did not offer any concessions, though, as we hear from NPR's Michelle Kellerman. North Korea expelled Travis King and took him to China, where he was met by U.S. officials. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller says the U.S. didn't offer North Korea anything, adding that much of the diplomacy went through Sweden, which represents U.S. interests in North Korea. Jonathan Franks, a spokesman for King's mother, Claudine Gates, says she was thrilled to get a phone call from her son. Ms. Gates will be forever grateful to the United States Army and all its interagency partners for a job well done. Her son had been jailed in South Korea on assault charges and was due to return home in July to face disciplinary action when he instead ran into North Korea. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. UAW leaders say they intend to announce on Friday how the union might further expand the strike against the major Detroit automakers. Union President Sean Fain will make the announcement Friday morning. The union began walking off the job in a targeted strike action earlier this month. A mixed close on Wall Street today. The Dow was down 68 points to 33,550. The Nasdaq closed up 29 points. The S&P 500 was up a fraction today. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts House is pushing forward the tax relief package that would deliver $561 million in tax reductions this fiscal year. It would top out at $1 billion by fiscal year 2027. Among other things, the package increases child tax credits, eliminates estate taxes under $2 million, and increases rental deductions. The Senate will vote on the package tomorrow. A Lemonster man has been indicted for allegedly attacking a flight attendant and trying to open an aircraft's emergency door while in flight. It happened in March on a flight from Los Angeles to Boston. Francisco Severo Torres was charged today with interference with a flight crew. He was previously ruled incompetent to stand trial. And a Boston man has admitted to robbing four banks in Greater Boston this spring. 31-year-old Jacob Pimentel admitted to robbing banks in Alston, Brighton, Brookline, and Cambridge between April and May of 2022. He will be sentenced in December. Brian Bale will be on the mound for the last home game for the Sox season tonight. Tyler Glasnow pitches for the Tampa Bay Rays an early game time tonight of 6-10. After tonight, the next home game for the Red Sox will be opening day April 9th, 2024. Partly cloudy this afternoon. The sun is making it bright enough, so you need sunglasses out there. Tonight should be partly cloudy and dry, about 50 degrees. Then tomorrow, lots of sunshine, temperatures in the mid-60s, lots of clouds again on Friday. 65 degrees in Boston at 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. In a world where often only those who can afford a subscription are the ones with access to the most credible, high-quality news sources, WBUR is available to anyone, anywhere, anytime, at no cost. But we can't take our future for granted. Giving monthly is the key to keeping WBUR strong. So help us get to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. If you already have a monthly gift, by the way, if you can add a dollar or two to that this time around, that would be fantastic. Uh, It adds up to a lot for us over the long run. This is why we're asking for you, please, to make a monthly contribution if you haven't. 
We need 2,500 people to do that, and there is definitely a special reason to do it right now if you haven't as yet. I'm Lisa Mullins with Emery Sievertson. Hello, Lisa. And yes, that special reason is that we have a dollar-for-dollar match on the table just until 7 o'clock tonight. So if you give $10 a month to WBUR, a generous group of listeners have put forth their money to make that $20 a month for WBUR just because you did it right now. If you are already a monthly um, sustainer of WBUR, and as Lisa said, you can add a dollar or two to that contribution, this generous group of listeners is going to match those dollars as well. So your dollar or two that you add will be matched for a full year going forward. If you give $20 a month, it's going to become $40 a month for WBUR. If you give a $50 gift every month, it's going to become $100 just because you did it right now. So now is absolutely the time. I hope you will be one of the people, one of the 2,500 people out there who pick up the phone and call 1-800-909-9287 or who give online at WBUR.org. Millions of people depend on the NPR network. We depend on you. Your support is central to our journalistic integrity. Donate to this station today, and thank you. And here's the way to donate, by calling 1-800-909-9287 or going online at WBUR.org. Our job goes well beyond reporting the news. We consider our role to be one of making sense of an increasingly complex world and to bring you understanding to build community as well. Because we know that when the people around us are edified, we're edified. We want an up-to-date, intelligent um, uh, population around us because that way we build stronger communities. We think that WBUR contributes to that, and we're hoping you will right now make us as strong as possible with a contribution, especially a monthly contribution of whatever you can afford, $5 a month, $10 a month, $30 a month if you can swing it. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And, you know, what we heard Megna say at the top there really hits for me. This, this idea that everyone deserves access to the truth. Everyone should have access to fact-based, thoughtful, independent journalism, independent-minded journalism, where we are helping you make sense of the world with no agenda or slant. That's what you get from WBUR. And, you know, I don't need to tell you how important that is when we have a presidential election coming up uh, next year. We have local elections, maybe in your very neighborhood that we are covering here on WBUR. When we know, when we all know more, we can all engage more. We all, uh, you know, have more of a stake, have, have more vested in our own collective future. And WBUR is, you know, we engage you, we educate you, we enrich your life and everyone who counts on WBUR. So your dollars are making that possible. You know, you know, you hear exactly where that money is going. Right now, we have this dollar for dollar match on the table, which means that your dollars that you hear that you, you know, worked hard for, they are going to go twice as far just because you gave right now. This generous group of listeners who say, hey, you know what? I can do my part, and my part is a little bit more because that's what I can do. That's exactly how this works. If you can give $10 a month right now to WBUR, it's going to become $20 a month for a full year just because you did it right now. You give you know, $5 a month. Maybe that feels better for your budget. It's going to become $10 a month just because you gave right now. So please do it. One. 
909-9287 is the number to call. You can give online, WBUR.org. Just give as generously as you can. Yeah, you can. You might think, I would love to be able to give $50 a month, but I can't do that. This is the time for you. If you can give $25 a month, it becomes 50 for us, with only 25 being taken out of your account every month. Uh, and it would help make us that much stronger because the match is good for an entire year. Your $25 will be matched dollar for dollar for a whole year. And we so appreciate that kind of knowledge that our uh, financial backing is that much stronger because of what you have chosen to do right now. So please make the phone call, go online, wbur.org, or call 1-800-909-9287. And again, it's wbur.org as well. One more thing, when you make a contribution to WBUR, say you give $25 a month right now if you can, Know that if your financial situation changes, you can change the amount at any time. Um, You're not beholden. I mean, it's not like a year-long subscription. If things change in a different direction, a good direction, and you'd like to help us even more, then you can do that as well. So we make it as easy and transparent for you as possible. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Yeah, and given how um, just in flux everything in life feels, think about how much you cling to and cherish the things that are just consistent. You turn on WBUR in the morning, we're there for you. You turn us on in the middle of the day, we're there for you. We're asking you to be that consistent for us right now. By giving a little bit of money every month, you protect WBUR. You shore up our future. So we need you right now to be there for us, especially when your money can be matched dollar for dollar. Your $10 a month becomes 20. Your 20 becomes 40. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call or go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. And Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. At 12.01 this morning, TV and movie writers were free to get back to work after almost five months on strike. Union leaders at the Writers Guild of America have reached a tentative deal with studios. It includes bumps in pay, restrictions on the use of artificial intelligence, and minimum staffing for TV writers' rooms. Now it's up to the writers themselves to ratify the contract in the coming days. And to hear more about what is in this deal, we have Ellen Stutzman on the line. She's the chief negotiator for the WGA. And we should note before turning to her, we did ask to interview a studio head or a representative from the Alliance of Motion picture and television producers, but so far they have declined. So we have Ellen Stutzman. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Thank you. All right. So top question for you, Ellen. Thousands of people went without pay for five months. Give me one thing in this deal that you think made all of that worth it. Well, the truth is there are so many things because what this membership managed to do was negotiate an exceptional contract that addresses issues across our membership. And Mm -hmm. I'll just mention them briefly for screenwriters, for television writers, for our comedy variety writers as they move their work to streaming. Um, We got 
a breakthrough agreement on a payment for success in streaming for original programs, something the company said they would never do. We also got data transparency, so all that closely held information about how well shows do will be provided to the Guild. And of course, a concern across all writers was artificial intelligence. Right. Okay. And we we're going to talk a little more about some of those issues. But can you just tell me what was the turning point in these negotiations that made this deal finally come together after several months? Well, I think, and there was a suggestion in July that perhaps the company's strategy was to starve us out until people started to lose their homes. And at a certain point, it looked like the companies were going to wait as long as possible. But it turns out that they couldn't hold out because they need content. And of course, I'll just say that Screen Actors Guild joining writers on strike in July had a big effect with two unions on strike, it was just no denying that this industry had to do things to address the real legitimate concerns that writers were facing, and now they have to do it with actors. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I want to ask about one of the wins that you mentioned. These are, uh, or this is greater transparency in viewership data on streaming platforms. Studios say that they also pay bonuses, I understand, if shows are successful. What did the writers say to make the studios finally agree to that? Because that was, that was something that you had long argued for. Yes. Well, the, the truth is some things are impossible to gain without a strike, and I believe that is one of them. It's an issue that both actors and writers had proposals for and that the companies absolutely refused to engage with before we went on strike. But with two unions out on strike on the same issue and unwilling to come back to work without a deal that addressed that, I think they finally understood they have to do something. It's incredibly important writers and actors and directors have always shared in the success of their work, and they've been cut out of that on streaming, and that's going to change now. Okay, so what hurt here, Ellen? What concessions did the Writers Guild have to make to get the studios to seal this deal? Well, I think what hurt is the amount of time it took and how the sacrifice that writers made is a sacrifice that all Hollywood workers had to make because the entire industry was shut down. And so I think everyone feels how painful an almost five-month strike is, and that's why writers did so much to raise money and help more than just writers, but everyone affected. And so that that's the most painful thing. Well, I know that one of the sticking points was also about the size of writers' rooms. The Writers Guild had initially asked for a minimum of six writers for certain rooms. This deal calls for a minimum of three. Are you happy with where you landed on that? Yes. We, we presented, you know, opening proposal numbers that we always expected to negotiate off of. And we've ended up with three levels of staffing based on the episode order. So really, in the most common uh, rooms, there'll be a minimum of five. In truth, six or fewer episodes. There aren't that many of those shows. So we're very happy. It's a minimum level. We've preserved the writer's room, which is fundamental to writers who work in television. And it's just a minimum. Okay. I also want to touch upon artificial intelligence. This deal includes guidelines on the use of AI. Very briefly, what does this contract guarantee to writers on that front? It guarantees to writers that artificial intelligence will not be used to replace them. It can't rewrite them. Uh, it doesn't affect their credits, and it doesn't affect their compensation. 
So it's, it's some sort of research material that can be given to a writer, but they are the one writing the script and they will be the one paid and credited for it. Okay, but on that, I know that there's a group of prominent authors who are suing OpenAI right now, accusing the company of copyright infringement when it, it comes to using the author's books to train its chatbot, ChatGPT. Does your deal give screenwriters protections against that sort of thing? Well, uh, screenwriters in this business, the companies own the copyright. And mm -hmm. so we, um, we are as aligned with the companies, essentially, and take the same position as those authors, which is that ChatGPT did not have the right to take those books or the scripts written by our members and now profit off of them. And so that's something the Guild will pursue on a policy basis. All right, so this ratification process starts next week. What happens if the writers are somehow not on board with the contract? Well, the truth is, and judging from the reaction both Sunday night and yesterday when we released the deal points, writers are ecstatic about this agreement. It's something that they won through their collective power, and I think we're going to see an overwhelming vote in support of it. That is Ellen Stutzman, Chief Negotiator for the Writers Guild of America. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Tonight's GOP primary debate takes place at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California. Reagan is a towering figure in American and Republican politics and was a touchstone for GOP candidates at all levels. But as NPR's Don Gagne reports, Reagan's legacy seems much less present in the current election. There are so many iconic Ronald Reagan moments. Any student of U.S. history can recite them, whether it's standing up to the Soviets during the Cold War. Mr. Gorbachev, teared down this wall. Then there was Reagan's optimistic view of America as, quote, a shining city on a hill. That we did keep faith with our God, that we did act worthy of ourselves, that we did protect and pass on lovingly that shining city on a hill. We could play dozens of examples, but these days, as the 2024 campaign plays out, such rhetoric among Republicans is hard to find. Dominant now is the approach of Donald Trump, who in his 2017 inaugural address described the country as, quote, this American carnage. Nearly seven years later, his tone hasn't abated. This is from two days ago in South Carolina. We're a failing nation. We're a nation in decline. And now these radical left lunatics want to... That Trump is so dominant explains why Reagan, even though he's still loved, is no longer the party's most publicly revered figure. Historian H.W. Brands is the author of a biography called Reagan, The Life. You know, it was fine for previous, we'll call them the pre-Donald Trump Republicans, to think of Reagan as a hero. But in the Trump era, there's only one hero, and that's Donald Trump. And so anything that elevates Reagan diminishes Trump. Reagan's signature issues have fared even worse. Trump and much of the GOP now argue for protectionism and tariffs instead of global free trade. As for U.S. strength abroad and maintaining strong alliances, Trump touts America first and says the U.S. is wasting money in Ukraine. He also boasts of his close and friendly relationship with Russian President Vladimir Putin. It's hard to imagine Ronald Reagan doing that when he considered the Soviet Union an evil empire. 
but it's been decades since Reagan led the party. Again, biographer H.W. Brands. If you're under 50 today, you really don't have an active political memory of Reagan. You might have heard about him from your parents because he left office almost 35 years ago. Now, Reagan's not exactly invisible these days. Former Vice President Mike Pence portrays himself in the model of Reagan on the campaign trail. I must tell you, when I started to hear the voice and the values and the ideals of the 40th president of the United States, I joined the Reagan revolution and I never looked back. Others do mention Reagan as well, like last week when GOP Senator Tim Scott was asked about the current UAW strike. He recalled that Reagan fired air traffic controllers when they launched a work stoppage in 1981. Here's Scott in Iowa at an event recorded by NBC. Ronald Reagan gave us a great example when federal employees decided they were going to strike. Either you strike, you're fired. Simple concept to me, to the extent that we could use that once again, absolutely. Tonight, seven GOP candidates will share the stage on the grounds of the Ronald Reagan Library in California. Look for the 40th president to be invoked frequently there, perhaps for this one night only. Don Gagne, NPR News. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, actor David McCallum, known for his role as the eccentric medical examiner on NCIS and a secret agent on The Man from Uncle, died this week. He was 90 years old. We'll remember his contributions to television. In business, the Dow dropped two-tenths of a percent today. S&P was pretty much flat. The Nasdaq rose two-tenths of a percent. Red Sox and Tampa Bay Rays close out their series tonight with a 6-10 game. It's the final home game of the season for Boston. A nice evening ahead. A little bit windy. Tonight should be partly cloudy. The temperature's about 50 degrees for a low. Tomorrow, mainly sunny and dry, up around 67 degrees. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Explore Babson College programs at their virtual open house on October 4th and 5th. Register at babson.edu slash open house. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. The journalism you get from WBUR depends on a strong foundation of listener support. And that's why your monthly gift is crucial. Make a modest monthly contribution that will have deep meaning and a big impact every day. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And especially, we hope you'll give right now. It's day one of our fall fund drive, and we have a great match on the table. An extra reason for you to please become a monthly contributor to WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins with Amory Sievertson. Hey there, Lisa. And you know, I like this metaphor that Daryl has introduced, a strong foundation. Think of yourself as a, as a stone in that foundation. When you give to WBUR, you make us stronger. You make it possible for us to do what we do. And we have a generous group of listeners out there who are putting extra dollars on the table to make that 
uh, foundation even stronger. They're going to match your gift dollar for dollar, your monthly gift. I should be clear, that monthly gift that allows us to know that you have our back consistently and we have yours. So when you give $10 a month to WBUR, that's going to become $20 a month for a full year just because you made that call right now. You call 1-800-909-9287 or you go to WBUR.org. And I should say it's any gift that you give right now. So maybe it's $10 a month becoming $20 a month. Maybe you can give $20 a month. That's going to become $40 a month for WBUR just because you did it right now. Here's an example, and you've heard many stories already today, but here's another example of the storytelling that listener support makes possible at WBUR. Hi, I'm Chloe Axelson, the senior editor of WBUR's Ideas and Opinion page. A 2017 essay by Julie Wittish-Slack gets a lot of attention whenever we repost it. The piece pivots on an old photograph of Julie's mom and dad and her aunt and uncle at the beach. All four have lived through tumultuous times, having survived Nazis and bankruptcy and disease. Yet in that photo... You can't imagine four people more full of life. Julie wonders how they did it. Did they have a stronger sense of agency? Had they simply lost their fear? Neither, she concludes. Those four parents simply loved life's essentials. Food, water, sun, and a herd to huddle with. With a blazing fierceness that parched despair before it could take root. I think people love this essay and keep returning to it because it delivers lessons for our anxious times. That even the most difficult of circumstances can be met with love and gratitude. A big part of my job is to help our authors uncover emotional truths. It's one of the ways our role at WBUR goes beyond telling you the news of the day to bringing you stories that illuminate ideas and foster connection. It's true that at WBUR, we do everything that we can to help foster connection and understanding about some of the most important ideas and issues around us. We face enormous challenges. Your contribution, right now your monthly contribution, helps us be strong for the months and years, we hope years to come. So please contribute right now while we can match your monthly pledge. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And really everything you hear on WBUR, when it's done right, as we do here, it gives you just a greater sense of what it means to be alive, what it means to be part of a society, what it means to have neighbors, to have, you know, political representatives, what it means to give back, you know, and right now you can do that. You can give back. You can support this kind of news and information and storytelling by giving back to WBUR, the place that brings it to you and to your community. You're giving that to yourself. You're giving that to everyone. And you're having your dollars matched dollar for dollar when you give right now. $10 a month becomes $20, $50 a month becomes $100. Whatever you can give, it will be matched. So please do it now. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, 
Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In New York, Senator Bob Menendez, his wife, and two other defendants pleaded not guilty today in Manhattan federal court to bribery and corruption charges. From member station WNYC, Nancy Solomon has the story. Federal prosecutors allege the New Jersey senator accepted hundreds of thousands of dollars from three businessmen related to a scheme to allow Egypt to purchase U.S. weapons despite concerns about human rights violations. The alleged deal also gave a New Jersey halal meat business a monopoly over exports to Egypt. A raid on the Menendez house and a safe deposit box last year seized $550,000 in cash, gold bars, and a Mercedes convertible. Menendez says he's innocent and won't resign, despite calls for him to do so by leading Democrats in New Jersey and in the U.S. Senate. For NPR News, I'm Nancy Solomon. A federal court is set to review proposals for Alabama's new congressional election map next week. As NPR's Hansi Luong tells us, the state's redistricting plan has been part of a long-running legal fight over the voting power of black residents. A panel of three federal judges has confirmed a hearing will be held in Birmingham, Alabama to go over any objections to proposals by a court-appointed expert for the state's new congressional map. Each of them include two congressional districts where black Alabamians have a realistic chance of electing their preferred candidate. That was a key requirement by the panel, which struck down maps that were approved by Alabama's Republican-controlled legislature. Those maps only included one such district, likely violating the Voting Rights Act by weakening the voting power of black Alabamians. The panel is expected to decide early next month which map will be used for the 2024 elections. Hansi Luong, NPR News. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street today as the market heads towards one of the worst months of the year so far. The Dow down 68 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Gun owners and Second Amendment are, uh, activists are opposing a sweeping gun reform package proposed by the Massachusetts House of Representatives. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, hundreds gathered on the Boston Common this afternoon to protest. The crowd began their march to the State House by reciting the Second Amendment. Wayne Adams is the president of the Norco Sportsman's Club in Princeton. He says he's opposed to the bill's restrictions on carrying guns on private property. There's too many restrictions as it is, and we're in some type of a race to the bottom with California, New York, and New Jersey of who can have the most stringent laws. House leaders say the legislation is needed to crack down on ghost guns, unregistered guns bought on the Internet that are assembled at home. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Massachusetts U.S. Senator Ed Markey is urging the Biden administration to track settlement money over the opioid crisis. Markey says 85 percent of the $50 billion from the settlement is not subject to oversight. He's demanding the funds be used in communities directly harmed by the opioid epidemic. State of Massachusetts is awarding more than $4 million to help with security needs at faith-based organizations that may be targeted for hate crimes. Governor Maura Healey says her administration is committed to ensuring the organizations have the resources to create safe environments. The money is being made available from the state using federal funds. On Monday, St. Stephen's Armenian Church in Watertown was hit with hate-based graffiti. 
Tall ships are returning to Boston. The historic sailing vessels will be back in the harbor in the summer of 2026. The city will serve as the final stop in a national regatta from New Orleans up the East Coast. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says the arrival of the ships will be part of the city's celebration of the 250th anniversary of the United States. It's really an opportunity for us to get back to our roots as well, to tell the stories that maybe haven't been told throughout our history, uh, to lift up the experiences and communities that make us who we are today, and to make the most of this um, economic opportunity for Boston as well. The last time the tall ships were in Boston was 2017. The forecast is coming up. Right now, in fact, a breezy, dry evening, partly cloudy overnight tonight. No rain forecast, lows about 50 degrees. Tomorrow should be sunny and nice temperatures in the mid-60s. This is WBUR. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Become a certified psychoanalyst and earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand how you can help your patients develop emotionally fulfilling lives. All prior master's degrees qualify for psychoanalytic training. Now accepting applications for spring. BGSP.edu. Going right back to the news on 90.9 WBUR. First, a little bit of business we need to take care of. This is the first day of our fund drive. Please, we'd love to start it with a bang, and we can do that with your contribution right now, especially your monthly contribution, because we're looking for 2,500 listeners to become monthly contributors to WBUR. And Emery Sievertson, who's with me right now, is going to explain a little bit more about that and an incentive right now to do that. If you are a monthly contributor right now, if you could please give maybe a dollar or two dollars a month extra, that would add up to a lot more for us in the long run. And we would so appreciate that. Um, if, it, if it's uh, something that you can afford, then please do it now. 1-800-909-9287 or go online at WBUR.org. Yes, and the reason why we hope that you'll do it right now is because we have a dollar-for-dollar dollar match on the table just until 7 o'clock tonight. But I hesitate to even say that because I want you to do this right now if you can. You're listening right now. You know, if you if you can just take a couple minutes of time, that's all it's going to take for you to make that monthly gift to WBUR, to know that you have done your part for the station that does so much for you, that brings so much to you. You know everything that you get from WBUR, whether it's on air, on WBUR.org, our newsletters, the WBUR app. Maybe you use that to listen to our programs and podcasts, um, you know, because you can listen live, you can listen later, you can pause, you can rewind. Everything that you get from WBUR is made possible by listeners who give as generously as they can to support the station. So we're asking you to do that now because your $10 a month, let's say, for WBUR is going to become $20 a month. Your $20 a month is going to become $40 a month. If you can make a larger gift right now, that will also be matched dollar for dollar, a monthly gift. So say you can give $100 a month to WBUR, that's going to become $200 a month just because you did it right now. So call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. We're hoping that you will do that right now. Make your call of support to WBUR. Starting an ongoing gift of $10 or $20 a month is the very best thing you can do to help secure a strong future for the station and the journalism that is essential for all of us. So as Amory said, right now we have some generous listeners who are offering to match 
your dollar-for-dollar contribution, a monthly contribution, and they will do that for a year. So if you can swing $15 a month, automatically it becomes $30 a month. Uh, But 15 is what's going to be taken out of your bank account on a monthly basis with your approval. And by the way, if your financial condition changes over the next year and you can no longer afford $15 or you want to add to that, feel free to do that as well. We make it as easy for you as possible to contribute to this station. And we hope that you will do that because what you get back, it's so transparent. What you get back for your investment is exactly what you hear and what you read online at uh, WBUR.org, what you get in our podcast, what you get at City Space, what you get in our multiple newsletters. We offer so much, and you should decide, we hope you will, what it's worth to you. Put a dollar value on that and pledge monthly. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Yes, and please give as generously as you can because it will be matched dollar for dollar. And this match is even possible because generous members uh, stepped up and said, you know what, I can do a little bit more. That's my part. I can help other people's contributions go even further. So yes, maybe it's that $15 a month. It'll become $30 a month. Maybe it's $30 a month and it will become $60 a month. It's like magic, except it's not. It's listeners who care and know that at what they hear on WBUR matters and they give to protect it. Be one of those listeners right now by calling 1-800-909-9287 or giving online at WBUR.org. Thank you so much. The actor David McCollum died this week at the age of 90. He left behind a distinctive and surprising legacy, as NPR's Netta Ullaby reports. When David McCollum, a Scottish-born actor, was cast as a sexy blonde Russian agent in the TV show The Man from Uncle in 1964, he became an immediate Cold War heartthrob. His character worked alongside an American agent named Napoleon Solo to quietly maintain world order. I am Ilya Kuryakin. Like my friend Napoleon, I go and I do whatever I am told to by our chief. McCollum's fans included a young Terry Gross. She asked him later in a 1992 Fresh Air interview about how it felt to be a baby boomer love object. Um, Was that annoying to you or fun or what to know that there were all these teenage girls like myself out there who had crushes on you? Well, you don't actually think about it that much at the time. Um, you do, of course. Instead, McCullum said, he thought about how far he had come from obscurity in England. There I was driving a 57 Chevy down Sunset Boulevard with the top down in the sunshine and going to MGM to work. So I was quite overawed. <laughs> McCullum was the son of a violinist for the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra in London. Originally, he planned to professionally pursue the oboe. A lifelong musician, he composed and recorded four albums and this song that was eventually sampled by Dr. Dre and used in the video game Grand Theft Auto IV. McCullum also played Judas in the 1965 Bible movie The Greatest Story Ever Told, and he kept popping up in TV shows ranging from Murder, She Wrote to Sex and the City. When he was 70, McCollum was cast in what would become one of the most popular criminal procedurals in history. Let's not make a habit of lunching with serial killers. Just get this guy into NCIS custody. On NCIS, David McCollum played a quirky medical examiner who enjoyed chatting with the dead. He loved the role. Playing Dr. Donald Ducky Mallard, he said, was just as fun as playing Julius Caesar in Shakespeare in the Park. Netta Ulibi, NPR News.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bridgewater State University, hosting Nobel Peace Prize laureate Lech Walesa on campus October 3rd, bridgew.edu slash events. I'm Tiziana Deering. At WBUR, our job goes beyond reporting the news. We also help make sense of an increasingly complex world. We foster understanding, build community, and when we can, we spark joy and laughter. But as we look forward, we know our future's not a given. Giving monthly, it is key to keeping WBUR strong. So help us get to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. You can do that right now. In fact, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with Amory Sievertson, just taking a couple of minutes to remind you that this is day one of our fall fund drive. We have an emphasis right now on getting as many of you as possible, including um, perhaps uh, 2,500 listeners to become monthly contributors to WBUR. It means so much to us mainly sustaining our newsroom, sustaining our entire operation with the kind of foundation that we need to in these really uncertain times. Here's the number, 1-800-909-9287, or pledge online at wbur.org. And we have just over an hour, about an hour and 15 minutes left in this dollar-for-dollar match. Amory? Yes, and, you know, if you're out there, first of all, thinking... What is up with all of this monthly gift business, sustaining member business? What What is this? Well, you know, I think that if, if you are anything like me, consistency is a beautiful thing. <laughs> it adds some stability to your life. It adds some, some, some reliability to your life. That's what we're hoping for here at WBUR. We never know what the news is going to be. We cannot control that aspect, but we can control our part in it, which is bringing it to you, um, helping you make sense of it all. And we want to know that we can do that day in and day out for you. And in order to do that, we're hoping that your support will be there for us day in and day out. So when you give a little bit of money every month to WBUR, whether it's $10 a month, $20 a month, $30 a month, when you make that gift right now, just for the next hour and 15 minutes, it will be doubled. So your $10 a month becomes $20 a month. Your $15 a month, let's say, becomes $30 a month, even a larger gift of, you know, let's say $75 a month, that's going to become $150 a month just because you made that gift right now for WBUR, thanks to a generous group of listeners who have stepped up to do their part. So we're asking you to join one of those, be one of those 2,500 people who will support us with a monthly gift right now by calling 1-800-909-9287 or giving online at WBUR.org. When NPR first came on the air, a set of principles guided our work. NPR will serve the individual, promote personal growth, regard differences with respect and joy rather than derision and hate. NPR will provide listeners with an experience that enriches and gives meaning to the human spirit. NPR will explore, investigate, and try to interpret issues of the day so listeners might better understand themselves, as well as governments, institutions, our world. NPR will be trustworthy, enhance intellectual development, expand knowledge, and increase the pleasure of living in a pluralistic society. NPR will be a service to listeners that makes them more responsive, informed human beings, and responsible citizens of their communities and the world. And that's still our purpose, work we do with you and for you, and we can only do it with your support. So please donate to this station today. 
1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. By today, we mean now, if you can, in the next hour and 15 minutes. That's how long we have this match, dollar-for-dollar match for monthly gifts. So please pledge your support right now because with your gift, you make something happen. Your investment reveals your values. So we believe that you think it's worth donating to an independent, accountable, reputable journalism enterprise. That is WBUR through and through. The number again, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. We are so grateful. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Whether or not you work for the federal government, a shutdown has sweeping consequences, from food and health benefits to the military to the economy as a whole. And these effects keep rippling out the longer a shutdown lasts. If Congress doesn't agree on a plan, a shutdown could begin this weekend. We're going to look at what this could mean across a few different sectors. And let's start with NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin, who covers health policy. Hey, Selena. Hi, Ari. Okay, if the government does shut down this weekend, what impact is that going to have on people who depend on federal benefits for food and other assistance? Okay, so SNAP benefits, which used to be known as food stamps, would not be affected in the short term. So people should still receive their October benefits, be able to buy their groceries as usual. Nothing changes there. But perhaps the most dramatic immediate impact would be for families that rely on another food program called WIC, which stands for Women, Infants, and Children. And that would be cut off within days of a shutdown, according Mm -hmm. to the Agriculture Secretary, Tom Vilsack, who spoke with NPR yesterday. It helps uh, nearly 7 million pregnant moms, postpartum moms, and children under the age of six. Nearly 50% of all young children in the country participate in this program. When there is a shutdown, uh, within a matter of days, benefits are cut off to these families. Now, the impact on WIC would likely be staggered because some states might have carryover funds or might be able to use their own state funds to keep things going for a little bit. Other programs that could be affected include Head Start, which supports little three- and four-year-old kids, and Meals on Wheels, which brings food to the elderly, and that could get interrupted as well. And then there's federal workers themselves who would have to go without a paycheck. The Capital Area Food Bank here in Washington told me it's preparing for as many as 100,000 federal workers to need food assistance if the government shuts down. Wow. Well, let's bring in NPR Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman. Tom, you've been looking at what a shutdown would mean for the U.S. military. What is the headline there? Well, some 1.3 million active military personnel will have to keep working and not get paid, along with, get this, more than 400,000 Defense Department civilians. Their last paycheck will be on Friday if there is a shutdown that begins over the weekend. Now, beyond the potential for no paychecks after Friday, there are some other problems for the military, the military commissaries on bases, which are basically like neighborhood grocery stores with good prices. Most of them will close around the country but remain open overseas. Now, the USAA, which is the United States Automobile Association, 
which provides insurance and banking services for active military and veterans, has said it will provide no-interest loans and also extensions for loan and credit card payments for its members. The big issue, of course, Ari, is if there's a shutdown, how long does it last? And these people who might stop getting their paychecks live in communities that uh, depend on service members spending the money they earn. So how might that ripple out beyond the armed forces? Well, there's no question there will be ripples in the event of a shutdown in certain areas with large numbers of military personnel. Get these numbers. California, 163,000. Virginia, 129,000. Uh, Texas, 114,000, and then North Carolina, Florida, Georgia, each have tens of thousands of military personnel. Mm. And there are clusters of military folks in these states around bases and other facilities. So, you know, a lot of people will be going to restaurants, bars, their military areas. So you'll see tattoo parlors, motorcycle shops. And the other thing people talk to me about is, you know, young military families living off base. They could, over time, have trouble making ends meet, buying groceries, child care costs. And they might put off purchases like clothing, car repairs, things like that, which would, of course, hurt local businesses. Again, if this shutdown happens and then does it continue for weeks or longer? Yeah, and this could obviously impact the U.S. economy as a whole. NPR's David Gura has been looking at that. David, I know you've been examining the impact of past shutdowns. What have you learned? Yeah, the most recent shutdown bridged 2018 and 2019. It was during the Trump administration, and it was the longest shutdown on record. It went on for 35 days, about five months. And uh, I'll just note here, it was a bit different than, than this shutdown. HHS wasn't affected. The Defense Department wasn't either. The funding was separate there. Even still, 800,000 federal workers were furloughed. The Congressional Budget Office says it delayed about $18 billion worth of spending. It affected economic growth. GDP in those two quarters, Ari, was fractionally lower, between 0.1 and 0.2 percent lower than what economists expected. And as you mentioned, that last shutdown went on for longer than a month. What would change if we were to see a shorter shutdown, like a few days or a week versus those 35 days last time? It would be a big difference. As Tom said just a minute ago, uh, this is the big issue here, how long this shutdown lasts if we get one. The longer it lasts, the greater the negative impact on both the U.S. economy and on U.S. financial markets. In, in a new note, the ratings agency Moody says it expects a short shutdown this time around and one that would have, quote, limited ramifications for the broader U.S. economy and GDP. Past is prologue, but something different this time around is the economy is already facing a host of headwinds. The Federal Reserve has been trying to cool down the economy to fight high inflation, and as a result, growth is slowing. On top of that, energy prices are going up. Russia and Saudi Arabia recently agreed to extend production cuts. That could push up gas prices, which of course has a big impact on how people feel about the economy and on their willingness to spend. And in just a few days, tens of millions of Americans will have to start repaying their student loans. So while there is all this optimism about the Fed achieving that soft landing, getting high inflation under control without triggering a recession, there are a lot of factors that could make the Fed's job even more difficult. A shutdown would be another one. And very quickly here, something else that could complicate things is if there were a shutdown, the agencies that collect and distribute the data the Fed relies upon could be closed. That may sound like a small thing, just some data. But the Fed has said and continues to say it's making its decisions about interest rate hikes based on those economic data. Jobs numbers for the month of September, they're supposed to be released next Friday. New inflation data the week after that. At that point, we're getting very close to the Fed's next meeting, which is scheduled to start on Halloween, October 31st. Okay, so there are a lot of unknowns. There are a lot of reasons to be concerned. But there are also some things that Americans don't need to worry about, even if there is a shutdown. So, Selena, let's turn back to you for a sigh of relief. 67 million Americans rely on Social Security checks. 
those will keep going out, right? What about Medicare and Medicaid? Will people be able to keep seeing the doctor? Yes, that is a little bit of good news. Um, so people who get health insurance or even health care from the federal government, whether that's through Medicare or the Indian Health Service or VA health care, they shouldn't have any interruptions because of a shutdown. So everyone out there who uses these programs, you can still go to the doctor. You can still make appointments. And HHS says it has enough money to keep paying states for Medicaid and CHIP. That's the Children's Health Insurance Program. At least they have enough for a few months, which is good because around 90 million low-income people rely on those health insurance programs. Uh, again, those those programs should not be affected, assuming that it doesn't <laughs> the shutdown doesn't last for more than a few months, um, which is pretty unlikely. Um, but it is not all good news on this front. I should say one area of concern is community health centers. Those are basically safety net primary care clinics that get their funding from federal grants. And that funding would likely be disrupted by a shutdown. Some clinics um, are going to local news. They're talking to their Congress members and warning that they may need to cut back on services or staff, depending, again, on the timing of the possible shutdown and how long it lasts. So much depends on how long it lasts. <laughs> yes. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin, David Gura, and Tom Bowman. So nice to have all three of you here in the studio. Great to be here. Thanks. Great to be here. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. WBUR supporters include Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. We are in the first day of our fun drive. We are coming up to the end of the first day of our fun drive. We have a special reason for you to call in right now, aside from the fact that it's the first day. We have a match on the table that will make your contribution twice what you decide to make it. So here to explain all that is Amory Sievertson. Yes, we have a generous group of listeners that have stepped up to match monthly contributions. These are people who give a little bit of money every month. You decide the amount. The important thing is that we know that you have our back month in and month out, and you know that we're going to have your back with all of the news and information and programs that you count on month in and month out, day in and day out, hour in and hour out, more like it. So when you give, let's say, $15 a month to WBUR, it's going to become $30 a month just because you made that gift within the next hour. So we just have a we got a countdown going here, one hour to go to have your contribution matched dollar for dollar, a.k.a. doubled, going twice as far for WBUR. Maybe you can give $30 a month. That's going to become $60 a month for WBUR. So how do you do this? How do you take advantage of this match? Well, you call 1-800-909-9287 or you give online at WBUR.org. At NPR and this station, we're not beholden to anybody but you. Public media is central to our democracy, so please keep it strong and donate today. Please do donate because we rely on you for the majority of our operating budget. Um, as uh, Michelle said there, we get money from other sources for which we're very grateful. Uh, the federal government gives us the equivalent of $1 per taxpayer in our region, and that's why 
um, we, we don't really want to be beholden to the federal government or to any singular entity. We want to be beholden to you, our listeners. That happens during fundraisers like this. When you respond to our request for you, for instance, to become a monthly contributor to WBUR. We're looking for 2,500 listeners to do that during this fund drive, especially do it right now when you can get your uh, contribution to WBUR matched dollar for dollar. You know, it's I have this experience all the time, Lisa, when I'm listening to WBUR, where you're just hearing, maybe the listener is just hearing, you know, your voice in any given moment, or they're hearing a story. It's so easy to forget what a team sport public radio is, whether it's, you know, you've got the host, but you have producers, you have editors, you have audio engineers, you know, beyond, beyond, beyond. It takes a whole team of people here to bring you everything that you hear. And I, what, what I think you might forget is that you are part of that team. You are on that team. We cannot do this without you. We don't exist without listener support. So, you know, take stock in that right now. Take, you know, promote yourself from a listener to a contributing member and a sustaining member, someone who gives a little bit of money every month and ensures that WBUR is safe and good to go. And do it right now in this next hour of the dollar for dollar match so that your, let's say, $10 a month becomes $20 a month or your $20 a month becomes $40 a month. We need you right now. You are on the team and we can't do it without you. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And again, thank you so much. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Policy Genius, committed to simplifying the process of getting life insurance by providing quotes from multiple insurers side by side, including options that offer same day approval. Learn more at policygenius.com. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden says he doesn't believe a government shutdown is inevitable, but he continues to be critical of House Republicans who he says need to do their job. Here's NPR's Deepa Chevron. Biden is traveling in the San Francisco area for campaign events and a meeting with his top science advisors. He says if the government shuts down, vital work in science and health will be impacted. But Biden also says the shutdown isn't inevitable at this point. I don't think anything's inevitable in politics. The Senate has put forward a plan to keep the government funded, but it's not likely the House will take it up. If no agreement is reached, the government will shut down on Sunday. 
Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, San Francisco. Attorney Ben Crump and the parents of Ronald Green are calling for federal civil rights charges in Green's death at the hands of police in 2019. That's after he was pulled over by law enforcement in rural North Louisiana. Molly Ryan with member station WRKF in Baton Rouge has more. Body camera footage shows a group of white state troopers shoving Green, a black man, to the ground, then punching and dragging him, leaving him face down on his belly. He died as a result of injuries sustained in the arrest. The officers involved are facing state charges, including negligent homicide and malfeasance in Louisiana. Green's family has enlisted the help of attorney Ben Crump, who has represented the families of George Floyd, Tyree Nichols, and several other black people killed at the hands of police. They're calling for the same federal civil rights charges against the officers involved in Green's death that were brought against the officers involved in Tyree Nichols' killing. For NPR News, I'm Molly Ryan in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. A move to decriminalize drugs in Oregon and Washington was meant to help reduce overdose deaths, but a new study published today found the policy change had no measurable impact. NPR's Brian Mann reports. The U.S. is in the middle of a deadly overdose crisis, killing roughly 111,000 people every year. Oregon and Washington responded by decriminalizing drugs in 2021, focusing more on treatment, less on punishment. But Corey Davis, co-author of a study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association Psychiatry, says so far the policy hasn't saved lives. This study actually didn't come out, I would say, how I think a lot of advocates were hoping this study found that there was actually no impact. One benefit of decriminalization, fewer people are being arrested and incarcerated for drug offenses in Oregon and Washington without triggering any apparent rise in serious crime. Brian Mann, NPR News. As Republican presidential hopefuls meet tonight for their second debate, the current frontrunner for the nomination, former President Donald Trump, is snubbing them again. Trump instead traveling to Detroit a day after President Biden's visit to meet with auto workers and deliver a speech. Meanwhile, seven GOP lawmakers will square off tonight at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in California. A mixed close on Wall Street today. The Dow was down 68 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Moore Healy has named her choice for the final seat on the MBTA Board of Directors. She's tapping Framingham Mayor Charles Zasitsky. He will fill the post reserved for a municipal official who represents a community the MBTA serves. The man accused of stabbing five Taunton police officers is being held without bail. 35-year-old Douglas Haggerty was arraigned today and sent to Bridgewater State Hospital for evaluation. Haggerty is accused of stabbing five Taunton officers after he crashed a vehicle into a building. One of the officers was seriously wounded. A Rhode Island bank has agreed to pay $9 million to resolve federal allegations of discriminatory lending. The Justice Department says between 2016 and 2021, Washington Trust Company did not provide mortgage lending services to residents of black and Hispanic neighborhoods in Rhode Island. The bank denies the allegations but says it entered into the agreement to avoid legal expenses. In the forecast, a breezy, dry evening, partly cloudy overnight tonight. No rain in the forecast, lows about 50. Tomorrow, sunny and dry and nice, temperatures in the mid-60s. It's now down to 57 degrees at 6.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. In a world where often only those who can afford a subscription are the ones with access to the most credible, high-quality news sources, 
WBUR is available to anyone, anywhere, anytime, at no cost. But we can't take our future for granted. Giving monthly is the key to keeping WBUR strong. So help us get to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. One hour left to go, a little under an hour, in fact, for that um, um, before that match uh, disappears. So we hope that you will get your monthly contribution to WBUR that you make right now, we hope, match dollar for dollar, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, again with Amory Sievertson. Hey there, Lisa. And we are down to 54 minutes to go for you to take part in a uh, listener-supported, member, generous listeners who can give a little bit more to WBUR, a match that they have put on the table to match your your monthly contribution that we hope you will make right now to WBUR. So what does this mean? This means that you give maybe $20 a month to WBUR every month. And this generous group of listeners are going to turn that into $40 a month for the next year just because you made that call right now, made that gift right now. And why would you do that? Well, because we we're here to remind you that you know, you are the public in public radio. You make everything that you hear on this station possible. Listeners who have supported the station make everything possible. So every single story you hear was paid for with a contribution of another listener. And you have a chance to be that listener right now to keep bringing stories uh, like this one. Here's an example uh, from Deborah Becker, one of our most experienced reporters here at WBUR. This is what your money goes to support. A story facing every community, every family across the country really is the ongoing addiction crisis. And it's been a focus of WBUR's coverage for years, especially in the area of Boston where the crisis is most visible, near the intersection of Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard, or so-called Mass and Cass. We've talked with many of the hundreds of people who are living or have lived on the streets or frequented that area where drug dealing and drug use is rampant. I've basically been disabled for a while and I've been trying to get housing and this is kind of the only uh, the only option that I have at the moment. We've also heard various plans from city and state officials to deal with the problem. This is really about getting to root causes, changing the dynamic, and part of the dynamic exists because everything is concentrated in one part of the city. We've talked with families trying to find loved ones at Mass and Cass, with police and sheriffs about arrests. And it's an issue we'll keep following because we know you want to know about the latest proposals and how local, state, and federal resources are being used to address addiction, mental health, and homelessness. So we'll keep talking, especially with those directly affected and with healthcare providers trying to help and policymakers grappling with trying to prevent even more lives lost to really what is an immense crisis of our time. Deborah Becker there. And Lisa, I got to say, everything that I know about the, you know, this crisis, I learned from Deborah Becker and from reporters like Martha Biebinger, people who took the issue, brought it down to such a human level and helped me understand, you know, what the issues are and what's being done and, you know, helps me understand my community better. 
And I know you relate to that because you listen to WBUR. You turn to us for that kind of news and that kind of storytelling. That is what your monthly gift is going to support. That's what you can can protect as a news source. That's what you can help keep bringing to members of your community by calling 1-800-909-9287 or going to WBUR.org, deciding what amount per month is the right amount for you to give, and then knowing that because you made that call, you went online right now and made that gift, now in this last hour of our dollar-for-dollar match, your dollars are going to go twice as far for WBUR. 51 minutes uh, before this uh, matching offer ends. So please, as Amory said, the signature reporting that you get from Martha and Deborah and all the reporters at WBUR must mean something to you because you tune into this station. So put a dollar value on it and make a monthly contribution. Here's the number again, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Thanks again. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. And Cityside Subaru, introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at CitysideSubaru.com. Love is now electric. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington, where a new lawsuit could fundamentally reshape one of the biggest companies in the world. The Federal Trade Commission and 17 states accuse Amazon of abusing its monopoly power. The FTC says Amazon broke the law to steer business to its own platform, hurting consumers and sellers. We'll note that Amazon is among NPR's financial supporters and pays to distribute some of our content, but we cover it like any other company. Our next guest is the chair of the FTC, Lena Khan. Thank you for joining us live on All Things Considered. Good to be here. Amazon has built its brand on a reputation for offering lower prices than its competitors. And in this lawsuit, you argue that they have only maintained low prices by manipulating the market in ways that ultimately result in shoppers paying higher prices than they would if they were fair competition. So can you begin by giving us one specific example of how you allege Amazon has done that and hurt shoppers? So there are a variety of ways that Amazon is now hurting its customers, both the sellers that rely on Amazon to reach shoppers as well as shoppers themselves. One is that Amazon has been hiking the fees that sellers have to pay. So sellers now have to pay a 50% cut to Amazon. It's a 50% Amazon tax. Sellers have to pass that along to consumers and sellers themselves are small businesses. We've also seen how Amazon has rolled out a pay to play ad scheme, which means that ads are what you see when you search on Amazon and you often get less relevant results and are steered to higher products. And in a healthy, well-functioning, competitive market, if a company chooses to hike prices and worsen service for its customers, that creates an opening for rivals to come in. But our lawsuit alleges that Amazon has actually engaged in a set of illegal tactics to prevent that from happening and to unlawfully maintain its monopoly. Like, just to get specific, I just bought a pet product from a website that was not Amazon. What do you allege Amazon does to make sure the website I bought the pet product from doesn't have a lower price? So Amazon has a policy, an anti-discounting policy, that basically punishes 
sellers who sell on other retail platforms at a lower price. Uh, they have a whole set of coercive and, and punitive outcomes for sellers who do that. You can basically disappear from Amazon's storefront if you put a lower price somebody somewhere else. And for sellers, you know, given the significant shopper traffic on Amazon, if Amazon makes you disappear from that storefront, that can be quite fatal for your business. So right. this is really small businesses' survival that's on the line. And so when Amazon says, hey, I'm going to punish you if you have lower prices elsewhere, businesses take that very seriously. And oftentimes, as a result, businesses uh, have to set their artificially high Amazon price as a price floor across the internet. Mm -hmm. So not only are you paying more on Amazon, but our lawsuit alleges that people are actually paying more across the internet because of Amazon's illegal tactics. We invited Amazon to provide somebody to speak with us. They declined, but the company's general counsel posted a response to the lawsuit on the website. And that response says, in part, if the FTC gets its way, the result would be fewer products to choose from, higher prices, slower deliveries for consumers, and reduced options for small businesses, the opposite of what antitrust law is designed to do. That's a quote. How do you respond to that? Look, I recommend everybody to read the lawsuit. Uh, the introduction itself is quite short and readable. It's 10 pages. So I, I recommend people read uh, our lawsuit and, and the tactics that we note. Uh, these anti-discounting schemes, this coercive tie that requires sellers uh, to use Amazon's fulfillment service if they want to be able to access a decent amount of shoppers. Um, these are all tactics that we allege are designed and have the effect of depriving any other actual or potential rival to Amazon from being able to get the scale needed to meaningfully compete. But in terms uh, so of the statement this. saying, if you win the lawsuit, there are going to be fewer products and higher prices, slower deliveries, et cetera. I mean, do you think that's factually true or false? Totally false. Uh, our lawsuit is alleging that as a result of Amazon's illegal practices, people are paying higher prices. Consumers are paying more. Sellers are paying more. I mean, sellers are having to give over one of every two dollars to Amazon. These are many of them small businesses with low margins. And so we absolutely believe that if we're successful, uh, there will be honest and fair competition in the marketplace and the public will benefit. The public will benefit through lower prices, higher quality, greater selection, more innovation. And both shoppers and sellers will have more opportunity, right? I mean, if you go and, and read from some of the seller comments, uh, you really see how many of them live in fear of Amazon's mm. conduct. And really, that's what our anti-monopoly laws were designed to prevent. Many people were surprised to see that this suit does not specifically ask for a breakup of the company. You argued in a famous 2017 academic paper that the only way to restrain companies like Amazon is to break them up. Now, I know that your first step is that you need to prove in court that they broke the law. But if I were to ask you for the 10,000-foot view, do you think there is any way to get Amazon to fix all of the problems that you lay out here without breaking up the company? It's a good question. And as you noted, this complaint is focused on establishing liability. Uh, we do, in our prayer for relief, note that all options should be on the table, including structural relief. Um, so that's certainly part of what's potentially contemplated here. Uh, ultimately, any relief needs to stop the illegal tactics prevent a recurrence, and fully restore competition. And one thing we note in the complaint is that in digital markets, the harms really aggregate. And you can have cumulative harms in ways that are greater than the sum of the individual parts. And so when you have an unlawful set of tactics over years and years and years, and as a result of those tactics, the gap and gulf between Amazon and everybody else is extremely vast, 
to actually fully restore competition might require significant relief. And mm. so that's what the complaint is teed up uh, for us to be able to argue to the judge. There are several polls and surveys showing that Amazon is one of the most popular and trusted brands, even one of the most well-regarded institutions in the U.S. Uh, just in our last minute, are there risks to bringing a massive lawsuit against a company that many people seem to love? Look, we follow the, the facts and the law where they take us. Uh, we believe that if you have open, fair, competitive markets, those are really what are best positioned to make sure the public is winning from competition. Uh, this is really about ensuring that the next set of Amazons are able to come into the market and fairly compete rather than be unfairly and unlawfully locked out of the market. So this is really about more competition, more types of Amazons, the next generation of Amazons um, being able to get a foothold in the market and compete and make life better for consumers, for sellers, uh, for shoppers. And that's really what this lawsuit is designed to do. Lena Khan, chair of the Federal Trade Commission, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks so much. The past decade has been very good for American car makers. Profits for the big three, that would be Ford, GM, and Stellantis, rose 92% from 2013 to 2022. They are expected to make another $32 billion this year alone. Now, where those profits go, back into workers' pockets or developing electric vehicles, for example, this is at the heart of the current strike by United Auto Workers against the big three. Let's parse the numbers now with someone who has covered the auto industry for decades. Micheline Maynard is a journalist and author of the book, The End of Detroit, How the Big Three Lost Their Grip on the American Car Market. Welcome. Mary Louise, I'm happy to be here. So let's start just with the big picture with profits. Why are profits up so much? There are a couple of factors here. One is that the car companies are selling an enormous number of pickup trucks and SUVs those vehicles now make up 80% of car sales. Hmm. Back about 20 years ago, it was 50-50. So 50% cars, 50% trucks. Now it's 80-20. The average price of a vehicle is now about $48,000, which just, you know, that's probably what our parents paid for houses and maybe yeah. even less than that. So car prices are up, profits are up. And on the surface, it does very much look like car companies can afford to give the union the raises that they want. Just before I move on from these insane-sounding profits, um, how surprising is it, given it was not so many years ago that there were all these predictions for the death of the American car industry, the, the death of Detroit? Well, we did see two of the car makers go into bankruptcy in 2009 and Ford Motor Company had to basically mortgage everything that it owned. But one of the things that happened when we did the bailouts was that they took away a lot of the debt that those companies had. So the car companies are leaner. And when you're leaner, you can make more money. Hmm. So the big disruptor lurking in the background of all this is, of course, the push for electric vehicles. And I want to look at this from both sides. First, from the automaker's side, we hear a lot about costs. How much is this going to cost the big three? Does it also present opportunity for, for higher profits? The whole electric vehicle push is a global push. And I have seen numbers that this will be a trillion dollars, trillion with a T type of investment for all the car makers around the world. In the United States, we're seeing numbers in the billions. One of the rules of thumb in the auto industry is that 
you introduce a new vehicle and it costs at least a billion dollars to develop a new vehicle, if not more. And you're not going to recover that for the first few years that the vehicle is on sale. So with electric vehicles, there's a huge hurdle because a lot of people are still not ready to buy a vehicle that plugs into an outlet. They're not sure that they'll be able to charge it up. They're not sure they're going to be able to drive up north to their cabin, which is a real concern here in Michigan. So a lot of people go up to the (laughs) Upper Peninsula. You're speaking to how many things are in play and that decision to to buy a car, which, of course, feeds into uh, the bottom line for the for the auto industry. I, I want to ask about the uh, the other side of the table, the union's take on the transition to EVs. What are they demanding as their bosses, as as the automakers transition to electric vehicles, which, by the way, will require fewer people to manufacture. Exactly, because you don't put engines in electric vehicles. You put batteries in electric vehicles, and you don't put the batteries together yourself on the assembly line. They come in on a truck, and they're dropped into the vehicle. So there will, I am sure there will be job losses. And I think what the UAW is trying to do is make sure that the people who are working now are getting paid more and that they get better benefits. And this other issue that people might hear is about COLA, which is not something you drink. It's a cost of living allowance. When the bankruptcies took place, COLA went away. It had been part of union contracts for years. So Sean Fain is saying, I want COLA back. I want Sean Fain, the UAW president, yeah. Exactly. Sean Fain is saying, I want COLA back. I want my workers protected from inflation because inflation has been a real issue over the last few years. And if you're only making $14 an hour and you get hit with inflation, I've heard of UAW members who are taking second jobs and even third jobs to be able to support their families. One more thing, and this is big picture, but you nodded to the fact that the auto industry is globalized. Manufacturers can look overseas for for cheap labor. Many companies here in the U.S. are producing cars with non-union workers. How much leverage do these workers ultimately have? There are so many fewer workers now. If you look at General Motors years ago, they had 400,000 workers They basically have less than a quarter of that now. So the strikes are hurting the car companies, but you don't have the breadth of workers that you once did. So I think they have leverage, but in the long term, there's other competition and there's other places to go. And I think what Sean Fain is trying to do is is get as much for his workers now, knowing that there might be some dark days ahead. Micheline Maynard, she covers the car industry and is based in Michigan. Thank you. My pleasure. This is NPR News. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College. Open house October 4th. School psychology, counseling, ABA, organizational psychology, and more. WilliamJames.edu. I'm Tiziana Deering. At WBUR, our job goes beyond reporting the news. Our role is to help make sense of an increasingly complex world. It's to foster understanding, build community, and as often as we can, spark joy and laughter. But as we look forward, we know our future isn't a given. Contributing $10 or $20 every month is the best way to safeguard our future. Give monthly at WBUR.org. 
We hope you will if you haven't already decided to give monthly. Especially do it right now because we have 35 minutes left in this terrific match that we have on the table. I'm Lisa Mullins and the co-host of Endless Thread podcast, Amory Sievertson, is here to tell you what's at stake. Yes, what's at stake? Here's what's at stake. Very, very um, practically speaking, you know, local journalism truly is at stake. We, we cannot take local, public, fact-based, independent journalism for granted because it doesn't exist without you. Everything that you've heard on WBUR today, yesterday, the day before, the month before, the year before, that was all made possible by a listener who stepped up and, and gave a little bit of money to the station, pitched in and did their part. And we're hoping that you will do the same right now because just for the next 30 minutes, we have a dollar-for-dollar match on the table for monthly contributions. Here's how it works. You decide what amount is right for you. Maybe you can give $10 a month to WBUR. A generous group of listeners have stepped up and will make that $20 a month for WBUR for the next year. Maybe you can give a little bit more. Maybe you can give $15 a month or $20 a month. $20 a month becomes $40 a month just because you gave in the next 34 minutes. So we're hoping that you will do that right now because you know you can only have your money matched for those next 34 minutes and we're counting on you to be there for us so call 1-800-909-9287 or do it online wbur.org it's Layla faulted from npr's morning edition the demonization of fact-based journalism is one of democracy's biggest threats This aversion to truth has taken hold as the number of local newsrooms has dwindled, leaving reams of disinformation to fill the void. In public radio, we have a responsibility to counteract disinformation. This station is an oasis amid all the noise and fiction. Having a reporter at the school board meeting at City Hall, that is our resistance to the undermining of a free press. We resist by being there, by providing platforms for people to see themselves reflected and to see difference. We resist by building bridges and by holding people to account. We do it thanks to you. You give us the tools we need to fight attacks on truth by donating to this station. Here's how. By calling 1-800-909-9287 or going to WBUR.org, you really do have the tools that we need to do what we do every hour of the day, 24-7. This is all because you make up in aggregate the majority of our operating budget. And that's why right now we're especially asking you to become a monthly contributor if you're not. That way we can know that uh, our journalism can be strong for you. It's supported by your funding for weeks and months and hopefully years to come. So make a contribution right now, just a half hour left to go with that dollar for dollar pledge, 1-800-909-9287. If you can make a gift of $20, it becomes, excuse me, $40 a month. If you can do $40 a month, it becomes $80 a month. Make it affordable for you and we would be so grateful for whatever you can give. We got marketplace coming up in just a couple of minutes, but you just heard Lisa there doing her own numbers. We're we're doubling. Yeah. We're doubling because a generous group of listeners I is didn't doubling. Even write it down. That's right. <laughs> a generous group of listeners is doubling your contribution when you make it right now in the next 32 minutes. So say it's $15 a month, it's going to become $30 a month. 
Or say you're already a monthly supporter of WBUR. Say you give $10 a month and you want to make it $12 a month. This generous group of listeners are going to double that additional $2 a month. So now is a great time to up your monthly gift if that's something that you're in a position to be able to do. Because truly, we count on you. When when we say you make everything possible, we're talking about the people who have already given to WBUR and we're hoping that you will join them because it, it is a good feeling to know that you are making WBUR possible, not just for yourself, of course, but for everybody who truly relies on it as you do. So be there for us in a steady, consistent, monthly way in any amount and it will be doubled just by calling 1-800-909-9287 or giving as generously as you can a little bit of money every month online at WBUR.org. We are so grateful for your support. Again, it's the first day of our fund drive. We have a goal of 2,500 listeners to become monthly contributors. If you're already contributing monthly, if you can add a dollar or two to it, we'd be grateful. Thank you again so much. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Thursdays at Harvard and Harvard Art Museums with a night of art, music, and more tomorrow at 5, harvardartmuseums.org. And Greener You, a design-build firm that plans, engineers, and builds solutions for getting to carbon neutrality, greenerU.com.